everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter. Our handle there is at Pod. In this episode, I speak with Jessica Hooten Wilson of the University of Dallas about John Kennedy Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces and Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am really excited to be joined by Jessica Hooten Wilson this evening. Jessica is a professor at the University of Dallas, and she's a writer and she's a regular on this podcast. I believe that she did episode 14 with us on Walker Percy and Love in the Ruins. And then she also did a Patreon's episode on Battle of the Classics. It's always wonderful to have you on, Jessica. Thank you. Well, I'm actually a listener and I'm not just a guest. I love your podcast. Yay. Well, we love you. <laughs> so we're, we're really glad to have you on. And I'm just, I, this, this episode has been like a dream of mine for at least a year now. So I'm just giddy with excitement because tonight we're going to be talking about two weird texts. The first being Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. And the second being John Kennedy Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces. So I want to start with Confederacy of Dunces. Okay. So let's let's just start at the obvious point, and that is, who was John Kennedy Toole? Yeah, so John Kennedy Toole has an interesting story himself. He was a student of medieval and Renaissance literature, and then he went on to be a professor of literature at, um, I think it was the... Loyola University of Lafayette. Yeah, he has kind of a mixed relationship with his Catholic upbringing. His mother, Thelma, is quite a character, very closely related to the actual mother character in this work as well. And he just had a spotty publishing track record. His book was really good, but nobody was kind of latching on and publishing it. And I don't know if that's what haunted him, but eventually he committed suicide before seeing the publication of the book. And so it's kind of this dark opening to the book to realize its context about the author, but the book itself is so funny. It's difficult to imagine the tragic author, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The book is hilarious. I mean, this book is like, first, this book is so absurd, like, but it's, genius (laughs) I I love it I mean every character in this novel is absurd there's not a normal person within miles of this story the story is absurd and there are just so many times when I just you know it's like you're sitting in a room reading and then you're just cracking up and everybody's looking at you I'm like I'm sorry but it's just hilarious and you also can read it out of context. Like when you laugh at a part and then you try to read just that line, it's like, 
you're not, you're not going to get just the line. Like you have, it's, it's scenes, it's episodes that are really yeah. funny. You need the yeah. whole setup. Well, none of it makes sense without the central character, who is, of course, Ignatius J. Riley. So let's talk about Ignatius or Gloria. <laughs> and I mean, this is has to be one of the most memorable characters, I think, in all of literature. And if I had to describe him, I would say he's like a mix between Don Quixote and Archie Bunker. Oh, I love but like that. what? Like what? He's hard to describe. Yeah. Let's talk about Ignatius. Sure. Well, you know, um, I didn't ever see it, but Nick Offerman actually performed a play adaptation of A Confederacy of Dunces. So in my head now, when I read this, I imagine Nick Offerman playing Ignatius Riley. Like that's who my cast is now for Ignatius. So yeah, Ignatius is called Don Quixote by Walker Percy, who actually helped the book get published. Because after John Kennedy committed suicide, uh, Thelma brought the text to Percy. So that's kind of the famous legend behind the publishing of the novel. And then Percy brought it to his um, local publisher, right? And then, of course, it won the Pulitzer Prize, and it was this crazy story. But Ignatius opens it, um, a green hunting cap squeezed the top of the fleshly balloon of a head. The green ear flaps full of large ears and uncut hair and the fine bristles that grew in the ears themselves stuck out on either side like turn signals indicating two directions at once. And then he has that bushy black mustache with crumbs of potato chips in the corner of it. And he has those blue and yellow eyes. So everything about him is almost a caricature, right? It's larger than life. It's extreme. It's over. Everything is overflowing. Like he overflows in chairs when he sits in them. He just, he's protruding out of his own clothing. So everything is just large feeling when you read He's also very gaseous. Yeah. yeah. The balloon <laughs> head. I mean, it all, it like sets it up. Like he's full of hot air, right? Like his head is yeah. just hot as a balloon when it very much, like when it opens. Yes. And he's always talking about his valve. <laughs> what is his valve exactly? <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it seems like he's a hypochondriac. It's not that the valve has a whole lot of reality, but in the same way that I think sometimes we talk about our sicknesses or our predicaments, where we try to self-diagnose and we come up with these reasons for the things that we do, or like maybe I was you know, really angry because I was so hungry, or maybe I was really rude because I'm just really tired. And we come up with these physical ailments that have produced these moral bad behaviors to justify mm -hmm. them. And so his valve is his constant justification for his morally irreputable ways of being in the world. Yeah. So he's physically disgusting mm -hmm. and he, you know, he, he just overeats and kind of lies around all day watching television or writing in bed. Mm -hmm. And he lives with his mother. It's actually unclear. Like, how old is he? Do we know? Interesting. No, you don't really have an age. And it, and the character is not based on John Kennedy Toole himself. It was based on one of his colleagues. So it would be interesting. I mean, I've always imagined him like early 40s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's way too old to be living mm -hmm. with his mom and, you know, <laughs> writing in his diary all day. And yeah, so let's talk about his character. Mm -hmm. So he is depraved in interesting ways. I mean, <clears throat> there's some uninteresting ways that he's depraved. He's a liar. 
Mm-hmm. For example, I mean, he's like a pathological liar. He abuses people. Right. He's constitutively incapable of taking responsibility for anything. Yeah. You know, his valve is part of that, but then also it's everything is always somebody else's fault. But he also has this really quirky personality trait that he really loves to indulge mm-hmm. in that which he purportedly hates. Right. Right. So he sort of gets off on <laughs> judging the corruption of the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what is going on there? Yeah. Well, I liked the gets off pun because of course, like in the opening scene, he's like masturbating over his dead dog, which is super gross. <laughs> it is super gross. Right? Yes. <laughs> so, and the way you describe it makes him sound like he's vicious. So if you haven't really read the novel, I mean, he's not a vicious character. His lies are these creative fictions in which he places himself in the world. But everything he's doing is somewhat of a performance, right? It it has this performative aspect. Like even when he's alone in his room, writing in his diaries, he thinks he's performing for future generations to see. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing nothing about him. I mean, it's all self-serving. Yes, it does, or seems like it's self-serving. So there's not a lot to like about him. But at the same time, you don't hate him the way you would hate Raskolnikov necessarily for, you know, you feel like he's murderous or um, that you would hate Iago because of the way he lies and manipulates people. Like there's none of that kind of evil viciousness about him. There's just a disturbing quality that's not, it's not sinister. It's just gross, you know, it's very carnal. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say he's very lovable. You sort of feel like you're on his side, but He's vicious. I mean, he's vicious in just the ordinary way of vice, right? Like he's slovenly and he's, you know, abusive and dishonest. And I mean, those are all vices, right? So maybe sinister is a better word than vicious. And I also, I'm really wanting you to unpack that lovable because I find nothing about him to be lovable. Oh, really? Maybe it's because I have someone in my life who really reminds me. I don't know. Maybe it's just my personal baggage. I Or maybe I just find absurd Hello. people lovable, which actually I kind of do. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I find I him hilarious. Wow. I do find him hilarious, but I do, I think that he's purposefully supposed to be testing the limits of love, right? So even mm-hmm. you bring up this idea of lovability, he really does test how much you can love someone. I mean, the fact that his mother is about done with him. That Mm -hmm. shows you that his entire character is like testing how much anybody could love this guy. Like he's somebody that not even a a mother might be able to love anymore. Yeah. I don't know. I I mean, I look, I don't want to date him, but I find him very lovable, but I don't know what that really says about me, but he, I mean, we don't, I don't really think we need to get into the plot so much because Mm -hmm. it's long and winding and complicated. And it has, I mean, it really is just sort of one farce after another. And then there's all of it sort of comes to a head at the end. You know, he, he leads a a failed crusade Mm -hmm. at one point. Oh, we haven't talked about how offensive he is. Right. (laughs) That's the other thing is this is a very politically incorrect novel. Yeah. (laughs) Should we have like a trigger warning? (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> like every offensive mm -hmm. term he uses. And I think uses with delight. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't you say that? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think he's perp. Like, again, it's, there's a lot of purpose. So he looks like he's this character that's just out on this wandering where there doesn't seem to be any, any purpose behind what he's doing. And yet he imagines himself in like a medieval drama or like a moral play from, you know, the middle ages in which he's mm -hmm. really like playing out good and evil on this large stage. So mm -hmm. he's offending. He's trying to offend. He's trying to like push over everything that's sacred to this capitalistic hedonistic culture and um, call them out on all their problems while still indulging in the exact same vices that they're indulging in. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, he hates modernity, but he's, he himself is, of course, very modern. So one of the, you know, central texts, one of the central medieval texts that he's always drawing upon is Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we should talk about what Boethius's text really says and then what Ignatius J. Riley seems to get out of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like, and like why this text is so important to him yeah. and how it sort of functions in this novel. Well, can I, yeah, let me set it up for a second. So Ignatius J. Riley thinks he's a scholar. He might remind some people of almost like a Flannery O'Connor intellectual son returning home and living with his family. Mm -hmm. right? um, but then... John Kennedy Toole takes it to a further extreme than O'Connor would have even gone with her characters, right? But these mm -hmm. intellectuals, they've learned so much, but they're not practicing the virtues that are supposed to accompany the wisdom they seem to have. And so mm -hmm. he quotes throughout this text, he's constantly quoting these grand sources that most people today haven't read. You know, there's not a lot of people that read Joseph Addison or read Boethius anymore. And yet he quotes it as part of like his daily way of seeing the world. So we're not just like randomly pairing Boethius with Ignatius mm -hmm. Riley. In mm -hmm. some sense, it's almost a gloss on that medieval story. It is how would modern people come to read Boethius's consolation and would it be consoling anymore the way it was mm -hmm. at that time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, his mother at the end says this is after she really is done with him. And I think she wants to send him to like some kind of insane asylum. <laughs> and she says to him, you learn everything, Ignatius, except how to be a human being. Right. Uh, yeah, that seems pretty apt. She, she sort of sums it up very well at the end. But let's talk about the real consolation of philosophy. So the setup of this, I mean, it's an interesting text because it's sort of part poetry, part mm -hmm. philosophy. But the setup is, you know, Boethius is going to be executed. Mm -hmm. And in, in real life, right, he's going to be executed by Theodoric, the the barbarian king mm -hmm. in Ravenna. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's like depressed and he's mad because he is going to be murdered for doing the right thing, mm -hmm. right? Or he's going to be executed for doing the right thing. And he's like, well, you know, Plato taught me that virtue would benefit me, but look at me now, right? I'm languishing in a dungeon by myself, yeah. awaiting my execution. This is stupid, you know? <laughs> so he's feeling like very down, understandably, mm -hmm. kind of feeling like he got gypped 
you know, mm-hmm. by falling for that philosophy stuff. And then this astonishing figure appears to him, Lady Philosophy. So let's let's talk about Lady Philosophy and, and what she says to Boethius. Sure. Well, and then the setup, of course, I mean, he's in prison and um, he's writing poetry at first, which I think is important both for confederate mm-hmm. classes, but also what you're talking about with Plato. Because at the end, when everyone gathers around Socrates and he's about to drink hemlock, what is he doing? A man who wrote philosophy his whole life is like writing poetry. So you had Boethius imitating that model and writing poetry. I guess this is what you do when you're about to die as an innocent victim of the system that is unjust, right? And instead, Lady Philosophy descends and is like, get those poetic sluts out of this prison cell. Yes. Yeah, and she calls them sluts. She, she, she's like, get these whores, these muses out of here. Yeah. Yeah, and so she basically just says that that's not the way to go right now. I mean, she really overturns Socrates and says, what did Socrates do his whole life? Let's go back to that. Like, let's go back to the examining our life. What were you here for? And so she gives him almost like a catechism, mm-hmm. right? It's not religious, but it's this. Okay, so what do you still remember? What do you still know? What do you still live by? And he's like getting all these questions wrong, uh-huh. right? And the, the dialogue, I think, is important, too, when you look at Confederacy, and we can go back to that in a minute. But she becomes this interlocutor with him, mm-hmm. right? This high voice that has you know, been revealed to him that comes down to him and tries to lead him back to what it is that he's supposed to know and be living by. Right. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me about this text is that Lady Philosophy comes to him as a physician Mm -hmm. and she's like, you're sick. And she diagnoses him with amnesia. Mm -hmm. She's like, Boethius, you've forgotten everything I've taught you. Good Lord. You know, (laughs) and so now let me help you try to recollect what you already know. And I think it's the third book where she's talking about Fortuna. Right. Mm-hmm. And which comes up all the time in this novel. And it's sort of, I mean, you know, it's, it's basically fortune's wheel. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say wheel of fortune because Americans can only hear that as a, as a really bad eighties game show, but like fortune has this wheel that's like constantly turning and you can be either, you, you can either be on the top and like you're king of the world and everything's great. Um, but then the wheel keeps spinning and she just crushes you like mm-hmm. a bug and you never really know yeah. <laughs> where you're going to come out there. And this becomes really important for Ignatius J. Mm-hmm. Riley. But the thing is, like, if you just keep reading, right, the whole setup is a contrast mm-hmm. between fortune on the one hand, because mm-hmm. Boethius thinks he just has had bad luck or something. Right. And she reminds him no, no, no. (laughs) Right. There's no bad luck in some sense, because this is all in accordance with providence. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there is this contrast between fortune and providence, like a kind of divine plan, according Mm -hmm. to which somehow Boethius is being executed is, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the plan and therefore good. Right. Well, she, and she reminds him of the kind of the, not lackluster, because it's very appealing to think about fortune, but fortune is what will lie to him, right? So good fortune, I think that she actually says this, good fortune deceives, bad fortune enlightens. Mm -hmm. So right now he's been falling for 
fortune being in control because everything was going his direction. Yeah. Actually, that's when you're not living according to the truth. And when you're in this place of suffering, suddenly you see things more clearly that you see that it's not just about good fortune being in control. And this is important for Ignatius because he, of course, keeps saying, oh, Fortuna, you're crushing me beneath your will. Well, if he was actually reading Boethius well, he'd realize if he's being crushed, then he's being shown the truth of things. Like he'll be able to see things better, not he's therefore like suffering at the hand of this fate and he's in a place of darkness or a pit. Um, so he's not reading Boethius correctly. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> no, he's clearly not <laughs> reading Boethius correctly. And I wonder about the upshot of that, you know, mm-hmm. in the novel. So you've, you've written this paper, which you sent me called the literary foolishness of Ignatius Riley, which I guess is forthcoming. Sorry, it's already out. So it's in a, um, it's a chapter in a book called theology and geometry that came out either 2019 or 2020. I don't remember. 2020 is a blur, but it's somewhere. It came out in somewhere in there. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Why don't you just tell us what your main thesis is in this paper since it bears on this? Sure. Yeah. It's this idea that Ignatius who wants to be a writer cannot actually be a reader because he reads everything with just one voice, with one perspective and therefore, and really it's a, it's a stance of pride that he takes on all these different texts. And by taking this stance of pride, he's missing learning from any of the things that he ever read. So even the lady philosophy in his life, which is um, Myrna Minkinoff, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she's she's always addressing the problems of the age. She's writing letters to her to him. And yet he always is dismissing even her letters. So even this chance that he could could have to have an interlocutor, a lady philosophy that came and enlightened him through a dialogue, he shuts down. So my argument is that he's constantly shutting down these other voices that would allow him to get out of the silo of himself and enter, I mean, become a human being, as his mother says, inner society as a human person, enter into a community with other people, even Mm -hmm. both, you know, both living and dead, the the dead that he reveres, he's not even actually in communion with because he cuts off parts of their their text for his epigrams. He doesn't Mm -hmm. do the whole thing. He doesn't apply it to his own life. And so he's just unable to do anything other than just perform for himself this, this monologic life that he wants to live. Right. Yeah. And I mean, what do you think? I I mean, I guess I'm sort of just tempted to say, look, I mean, this novel won the Pulitzer Prize, Mm -hmm. right? It's supposed to be a really good novel. What, like, what is, what is Tool trying to say in this novel when you just cut through all of the just hysterics and all of the really smart I mean, I should also, I mean, we've been emphasizing how funny it is, but it's also incredibly brilliant. It's clear that a very literate man wrote this novel. And I think you could enjoy this novel not picking up on any of that stuff because it's just objectively hilarious and and funny. But if you're kind of tuned in to the ways that it's also clever and sophisticated, right? But But like, what is he trying to do in this novel? So I think it's kind of a contemporary Ecclesiastes, right? Okay, say more. Yeah, so Ecclesiastes opens by saying absurdity of absurdities, 
or the literal translation of the Hebrew would be breath, mere breath. It's not the same. It's hevel. It's not the same word as like the breath of God, which moves within us. The providence that Lady Philosophy was talking about, the meaningful breath that gives you purpose, right? Instead, it's the gaseous breath of Ignatius Riley. And he is the preacher or the teacher assembling this collection of knowledge that mm -hmm. seems at odds. Some voices say this, some voices say this, and he just puts them all in contrast until he's like exhale, exhaling nothingness, right? Mm -hmm. um, totally gaseous, absurd. And then the book ends almost with a point back to fear God in a weird way because he's being rescued Yes, he is rescued in the end. He's rescued in the end. And he rolls down the window and he says that the air is purgative, mm -hmm. which I love. So, so he's actually breathing in the wind, which is ruah. That's the Hebrew word for the breath of God is the wind. He's actually breathing in this purgative wind at the end to replace all of his gaseous absurdity that he has just assembled throughout the novel and, and finding maybe there is a providence like Lady Philosophy said, or maybe there is a meaningful breath in the world. So it just kind of, it points to that. If you want to think about um, the novel itself, almost like a genre on a wheel, Louise Cowan would talk about um, these different genres all cycling into one another and mm -hmm. always move from tragedy into the great comedy. Mm -hmm. Even if it only points that that's the next place on the wheel, you see that it's turning there. And I think that that's what this novel does is it kind of points us there or looks like it's going to move toward comedy. Um, mm -hmm. But he doesn't ever get to that moment in this book. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a comedy in the traditional sense, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also a comedy in the modern sense that it's hilarious. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but it's also, isn't it also kind of satire? I mean, it does open up with this just fabulous quote from Jonathan Swift, mm -hmm. right? Which is, when a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him, <laughs> right? Which is sort of, I mean, the degree to which this is perfect is hard mm -hmm. to overstate because you know, Ignatius thinks he's a genius mm -hmm. and he's not, right. <laughs> he's really right. not a genius. <laughs> and, but it, but it's also true in a sense that the dunces are in confederacy against him. Yes. yes. I think that's what makes the novel so funny is every time he actually tries to do some sort of good, that uh -huh. ends up being so funny. I mean, when he does mm -hmm. One of my favorite scenes, of course, is when he tries to gather all the people who aren't being treated right at the factory. And so he tries this whole revolt and like to first get... Oh, this is the crusade for... Yeah, the crusade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like anybody who's been reading all the same stuff that Ignatius has been reading, in your head, you might be thinking like Ulysses gathering the troops on his ship, you know, to go sail out or some grand speech that someone's going to give and everyone's going to follow the lead. And that's how he casts himself in that role. And instead he's like up there trying to get on their side by liking jazz. And so you have this huge obese man standing on these railings of the factory, 
white man trying to stand a bunch of in front of a black employees and he's dancing to jazz and saying, do it, baby, do it, baby. And you can just imagine, I mean, it's, yeah. it's hilarious. It's not a call to arms. It's not a move towards social justice. It's just, it's a parody of this man's attempt to so-called rescue people. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. I mean, no, he really does fancy himself as some kind of genius, as some kind of savior, as some kind of prophet, you know, if only people would listen to him. Like on the one hand, you know, it's obviously absurd, but then on the other hand, Ignatius really is onto something, right? Mm-hmm. There is something deeply right. wrong yes. with the world yes. that he sees, right? The, the people he's trying to help in the factory, they, they should not be treated the way they've been treated. I mean, there is there is truth there. It's the same with um, the queer mob in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. He wants to gather them all together, right? All of these people who so-called have been outcast by society. It's 1980, right? Mm-hmm. So they can't you know necessarily be themselves. And so he dresses up like a pirate because he feels like that costume will make him look like one of them. So there's, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a major satire here. And yet they don't, they don't hear his call to embrace what he's offering. They laugh mm-hmm. at him and they find mm-hmm. him silly. And so he is constantly trying to do these good deeds, but of course, not, never from a pure place and, and always with humorous consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a woman that he's having correspondence with throughout the entire novel who mm-hmm. also is is a very absurd you know over the top sort of figure she is someone who is also like a critic of the world but from a totally different direction like she is very committed progressive i think she is i think she's a communist mm-hmm. it sounds yeah. like it yeah yeah and you know and she also has these goofy ideas about sexual liberation so she just thinks like oh if if everyone were just you know sexually free like they would just be so ecstatically happy and have no problems and and so she's constantly you know like mm-hmm. tr- just trying to get ignatius well one to to leave his mother's house which seems like the right impulse <laughs> you know but two to really get over his sexual hangups mm-hmm. and you know it it is really weird because on the one hand like he thinks he's a celibate or or he you know he's some kind of champion of chastity and um but on the other hand he's like a habitual masturbator mm-hmm. so like, really... so again he's just like this giant contradiction so they have this they have this correspond this mm-hmm. hysterical correspondence throughout the whole novel mm-hmm. and then finally in the end she comes like i think she sort of recognizes that he's in some kind of crisis mm-hmm. right and and she's gonna come she's gonna come save him i've never really quite known what to make of this because i've never really quite known what to make of her so help me out there mm-hmm. i don't really know what to make of of her well i feel like everyone in the novel is always trying to fix things or get things right but none of them have philosophy Like none of them have wisdom that would actually help them respond to problems well. 
Does that right. make sense? So, you know, yes. it's the patrolman Manusco who's just going to follow according to the law. And then there's mm -hmm. Mirror who thinks sexual liberation is the answer to things. And then Ignatius, who thinks the medieval route is the right way to go, but he's missing what it is that made the medievals so great, which was namely their faith. He can't just be this pretend monk when he doesn't believe in the God they believed in. That doesn't make any sense. That's kind of like mm -hmm. followed out. And again, then it just becomes a performance. Mm -hmm. So Myrna is trying to, you know, really become a savior for him. And she does. She, it's the end of a medieval you know, Marie de France, where the, the knight rides in and carries away the damsel. She plays mm -hmm. that role now. She rides in and carries Ignatius out of this problem. Only in this case, he's she's actually not saving him because I think he'd be better off if he was in a place of charity. I mean, it's called a charity hospital, right? Like he's, mm -hmm. that's where he would be better off than in the hands of this woman that doesn't mm -hmm. know any more than he does. And mm -hmm. if you wanted to write the, your own ending of the novel... You can imagine like the two of them, like they probably stop on the side of the road in less than five minutes of driving away <laughs> mm -hmm. are already at odds and already, mm -hmm. you know, all of the animosity you've seen between them is going to like come to broil. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's not a novel that like ends happily ever after with them driving into the sunset or anything. No, but it does end. I, th I sort of thought you were saying earlier that you thought it ended on a hopeful note. Yeah, I still think that I still think so. Just the idea that someone... As you said earlier, we find him lovable. I don't. I do think he actually tests the limits of love. But the very fact that he's unlovable and still deserves her charity or rescuing, and that that sense of being rescued by another person for a moment takes him out of himself, where he says twice at the end in the last paragraph, says grateful twice. Mm -hmm. he's like reflecting on this new feeling of gratitude that he's never experienced. So I do think there's hope. I'm just not sure that it's a happily ever after kind of hope. Mm -hmm. Well, so you said, you know, what's, what's missing is, is faith. And I think that's interesting because, because it's a question about both texts. I mean, there's a lot of questions about the consolation of philosophy, right? What sort of text that is. And the first question that you always get when you teach the consolation of philosophy, or it's really like the first question you probably ask yourself as a reader is, you know, if Boethius is a Christian, like a really committed Christian and not just a Christian of convenience, because mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the way things went in the mm -hmm. Roman Empire, mm -hmm. which, which of course is a theory. I mean, there are plenty of scholars who think you know, that Boethius was really just a pagan at the end of the day. I don't have that view, but that's a, but that's a view. And, you know, people are inclined to this view because when Boethius is dying, he's not consoled by Christ. Mm -hmm. He's not consoled by what theology has taught him. And he did write theology, like he wrote on the Trinity. I mean, it's not like he just didn't know it. He's consoled by philosophy, right? Not faith. Because what Lady Philosophy tells him about providence and about divine foreknowledge and freedom are things that she thinks can be known by reason. There's no, I mean, yeah. there's no revelation, strictly speaking, in the consolation of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so there's a question about faith in that text, but then there's also a question about faith in, mm -hmm. in this novel because 
On the one hand, you know, Ignatius J. Riley was a rad trad before it was cool. <laughs> and he's constantly, you know, like he has this kind of spiritual pride. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the ways that he abuses his mother. You know, like he's always like, oh, you know, you need to go to confession for this. And what? They only gave you two Hail Marys. And, <laughs> you know, he's constantly like berating his mother. He doesn't ever seem to like go to mass or go to confession himself or even pray. So what really is, is faith to him besides yeah. another rejection of modernity? Yeah, I, no. And I don't think he has it. I think that's what really ties these works together and also ties them with Ecclesiastes. Because a lot of people feel like Ecclesiastes doesn't fit scripture. It doesn't ever refer to Yahweh. Like the mm -hmm. text itself, even when it ends and says, fear God, it uses Elohim, which is like, can also be the gods or the fates, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. so all three of those texts are pointing out something true about the world that it seems to be absurd. And mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, there's, but it, they're showing this hole, this gap, this absence that needs to be filled by something. And that's where they get to, they get to the need for revelation, the need for something other than what their reason can get to, because reason seems to lead them towards only this high. And it, mm -hmm. but it points that there must be something higher. So I don't, I feel like it is a very like via negativa, like there's this empty spot, there's this pointing that should be, and not, not any of those three texts actually get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because it sort of goes back to my question of like what Kennedy Tool is trying to do with this novel, mm -hmm. because it's a novel that takes place in a very Catholic city, right? Mm -hmm. That draws on this kind, this kind of rich Catholic literary tradition that has this central figure that's like this abusive Brad trad yeah. who rejects modernity, but like. What is he really saying about it at the end of the day? Yeah. Well, and I think he's trying these things out. So in the same way, you know, what is the meaning of life? That's the biggest question of all, right? Like, what is the purpose of all this? What's the point? And mm -hmm. you have this text in which this man supposedly were reading all of these sources from tradition where he should have been asking that question. And the only thing he gets to is himself. And, it, and I can't help thinking about Ecclesiastes where he's like, I'm going to try to build gardens. I'm going to try to sleep with lots of concubines. I'm going to get drunk on wine a lot and see what happens. And then you, Ignatius Riley is very similar to that. I'm going to eat a thousand hot dogs and see if that makes me happy. Right? I'm going to try all these different ways of does he world. Does he really intend to eat all those hot dogs or does it just kind of happen? <laughs> I feel like it just kind of happens, you know? <laughs> like he gets nervous and he's just like, oh God, I ate like five more hot dogs and my valve is <laughs> erupting. It's, it's so gross because you can imagine like, you know, the way that people normally eat. It's like, maybe I could eat more jelly beans than I meant to because they're tiny. Hot dogs, like, <laughs> like the gag reflex of this book. And, you know, Walker Percy used to say, um, he wrote Lancelot kind of in the hopes that your gag reflex would be put on, that it is so mm -hmm. bad that sin is there, mm -hmm. that maybe you would realize sin is actually a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this performance by Ignatius Riley is so gross, right? It's the extreme version of the sins all of us participate in all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. It takes it to the extreme, but 
it is also telling the truth about things and the way we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so for people who don't like this novel, Mm -hmm. which I don't get, but they are definitely out there. They have outed themselves on Twitter. I won't name names. <laughs> but, you know, some of them are serious literary types. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you say to someone who just, like, doesn't get it? How would you advertise this novel as a classic, as something really worth reading and thinking about? And not just, like, enjoying. Because it, we obviously both agree that it's immensely enjoyable, but suppose that you didn't enjoy it. Why should you still take it seriously as great literature? Like, why is it a great book? One, I think it because it joins the tradition, right? It doesn't exist in a vacuum. The book is responding to hundreds, even thousands of years of people asking, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of things? And Mm -hmm. he, he draws all those those traditions, those authors, those writers, those ways of being in the world into the text and doesn't try to just come up with something as though none of that tradition has ever happened. And I love that. I I love that there's all these layers to the novel that the more you dig, you don't find like, oh, I, I dug and I pulled at this thread and then there was nothing there. I feel like every time I dig at a thread in this novel, I realize there was more to it than I saw on the surface. Mm-hmm. And that to me says that it, it's a pretty great work, right? If you're actually pulling and pulling and, you're, and you discover more things. Um, one of the arguments that I kind of pulled out for a little while was trying to see him as a holy fool. I didn't totally get that. So let's talk about that. Because I, I, yeah, why would you think he's a holy fool? The idea of the holy fool in Russian tradition would be that someone performed all the sins of a community in in their region, like in their city. And then, mm-hmm. then you stone them, you outcast them. And in that sense, they become kind of like an inverse of Jesus. Like they, he literally takes the sin upon himself by sinning mm. and then is outcast by the society the way the innocent Jesus would have been. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So Ignatius Riley is performing for the community and then they get to cast him out. So he, he kind of plays this role. The question, I mean, there's lots of ways he doesn't too, which I think also makes it a really great book is that it's not, there's no allegory. There's no just one type or one way to read Ignatius. But once mm-hmm. you start reading him that way, you realize there's more depth to the novel than you may have first seen, because then mm-hmm. you have to asking some of these questions, the ways that he fits and doesn't fit and why not, right? Mm-hmm. Is there room left in the 21st century for holy fools to even exist? Right? Or will we just see them as sinful people among us? Or would we just see them as outcasts or something? I'm interested in what its critical reception was. So, I mean, I know that it's critically acclaimed, mm-hmm. but I'm curious what people made of it. Or Do you I know. I don't, I don't know its 80s reception. I know that still now there's only a very small cult following with this book. It's not oh, something. See, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just. I mean, I feel like down here in the South, everyone's read it. Oh. At, least, at least all the men I meet have read it. <laughs> that, that would be probably true. Like, it, it kind of hits the same buttons as, like, a David Foster Wallace or a Kurt Vonnegut or Walker mm-hmm. Burton. Like, it's that same group that really likes mm-hmm. them. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a lot of the people that I'm probably around, like, English professors reading Jane Austen are not into this novel, right? They, they would, I mean, mm-hmm. I love Karen Swallow Pryor, but I, 
I can't imagine that she would have ever read this book or want to read this book. Oh, well, now we'll have to ask him what she thinks of the Confederacy. I'm curious. Well, and that's why it's so smart. I feel like she would like it. It's just so smart. It's different. It's a different taste. It's a different kind of palette. So what the book is doing is very different from Jane Austen. Like Jane Austen, it's really hard to disagree with Jane Austen. Like the people should be nice to one another and that you should have manners in society and that you shouldn't chase after wealth and that marriage is a good thing. And I mean, it's just really hard to feel like you've been pressed out of your boundaries. I I think it's, I just think it's mad and brilliant Yes, and absolutely hysterical. And Ignatius J. Riley is someone who just stays with you. And yeah, I mean, this is really helpful. I still don't, I mean, there's a lot to think about, but I, I mean, I guess of all the threads here, the one that appeals to me the most is the idea that, you know, it's, it's a novel that's calling you to to see things in a deeper way. Right. And it seems, I mean, because it, while it's true, because, like it's obviously true that mm-hmm. Ignatius J. Riley has had some sort of profound miseducation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? which probably, I mean, let's get real, like we all have mm-hmm. had some mm-hmm. profound miseducation, but his, his seems to be very deep. And what's impressive about it is that it seems to be a miseducation of great books, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like, it's not like Madame Bovary where he was just raised on right, crap. Right, right. And right. so like you were fed a diet of crap and now you can't love anyone. That's okay. Point. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is not his problem. Right. He wasn't fed a diet of crap, right? He was given like a literary feast, mm-hmm. which he in some sense internalized, but in the wrong way. Well, and that's, oh, you're, you're so hitting on something. I mean, that's the, that is the problem. It's, he approached absolutely everything with a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. He was just pulling from it as he needed, which is the same thing he does in his life. He uses people, like he uses books. He has that same approach. And so his whole inner life, even the idea where he keeps saying, I have a rich inner life. I have a rich inner life. But I still need as many hot dogs as possible. I still need the comforts of life. Like, well, you don't have a Always rich capitalized. Life. Yeah. Always capitalized. I have a very rich inner life. It's a product. And so you're definitely hitting on it. It's not a matter of what you read necessarily. It is in in part, look at the difference between Bovary, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. It is partially content, but the other part of it has to be how you read these things. Mm -hmm. And, And that's the education he missed. He never saw how to read with humility or how to live differently after you read a book. He read things to consume them and use them. Yeah, right. And then to like lord it over others. I mean, I think it was a way of being superior because, you know, like everybody else in the novel, except for Myrna, is not educated really at all, mm-hmm. right? And and so it's a, it's a kind of a way of, I don't know, making himself seem better than mm-hmm. them. Even his attempts at social justice, he's always standing above, right? He stands on tables. He stands mm-hmm. up above people to try to lift them up, but it's only only to be lifted up underneath them. Mm-hmm. Never, he's never below them lifting them up in his place, right? So it's mm-hmm. always still a problem. It's the same way he approached the text, standing above it and pulling from it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the uh, so I, one last question, maybe it's my last question. So the other people in this novel are all very weird and comical mm-hmm. and also bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like they're all kind of bad people and they're in their own weird mm-hmm. way. What What is going on there? <laughs> the fact that you don't have any good people, you mean? <laughs> yeah. There's nobody. Is there anyone in this novel that is good? Like maybe Trixie, I don't know. No, no, I don't. I don't think that there is. I think there are aspects of different characters that have goodness in them. Patrolman Manusco is yeah. probably one of the better characters, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, he's still limited because there. I mean, there's no creativity to the man, but he's loving. He's law abiding. Mm-hmm. generous he's charitable like the, you know he's probably the best character mm-hmm. in the work maybe because mm-hmm. i i guess i'm just wondering like you know in all of his interactions with other people mm-hmm. right i mean they don't they don't really seem meaningfully better than him no what i'm wondering so I, there's that great line that tim keller always says where he's like um you are, I don't, I'm going to get it wrong and butcher it, but it's like, you are worse than you can ever imagine, mm-hmm. but you're also more loved than you can ever imagine, which mm-hmm. I think is what this novel is doing. All these characters, somehow there's love between characters. Mm-hmm. There's good relationship, right? Like relationships actually happen. People care about other people. People make changes in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so they're so, they're so good, even though they're all horrible. There's every single one of them, not one of them is without sin. Mm-hmm. Right. So I recently read, I think somebody was maybe in the New Yorker. Somebody was like trying to cancel this book. Did you see no, that? Oh, I did not. I was usually with this Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's just... I mean, look, this book would be so easy to cancel, right? It's incredibly offensive. But like... But it's not. But way to miss the point, Yeah, right? Because it's like, of course this guy is offensive. That's part of the whole... Yeah, yeah, we're not not allowed to to love a confederacy of dunces. See, I mean, the problem... Which, I mean, talk about the problem of not being able to read. As if Ignatius J. Riley is supposed to be a moral exemplar. Right. right? Yes, also, please go masturbate over your dead dog, because that's the point of the work. Like, what in the world are you missing? No, you're not supposed to imitate him. If you went away... It's like if people watch Mad Men and then decided to be Don Draper. It's like, did you completely miss the point of Mad Men? Right? Like, that's not the point, is to imitate these horrible characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, wow. I, I did not know that, but that makes me really angry at our culture and makes me want to write a book on how to read. Yes. Well, it's a, it's a perennial problem. If I had to create a bookshelf of, like, the books I would take to a desert island, this is on it. Really? Yeah, it is. And, like, it is one of my top 15, 20, I mean, it's, it's maybe I'm trying to decide if it's in the top 10, but I'd have to go through my list, but it's at least in my top 15 or 20 books that I would bring. Do you, do you teach it? I have taught it one time and it didn't, okay, cause it got going well. I can't imagine teaching this. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Like it, I taught, I, I think if I could teach it now, I would teach it in conjunction with Percy's lost in the cosmos. 
said, oh, really? Why? Because, so, because I think it sets us up for the way that Percy goes through all of our different um, sacred cows. This mm -hmm. is what the world means. This is what life is about. And then like leaves everything blank except for God. I think that the novel then is an embodiment of that philosophy that's more explicit and lost in the cosmos that we don't know who we are. Like the same way you're talking about with Boethius, like you've lost yourself. You've forgotten yourself. It's like self amnesia. Mm -hmm. It just rarely embodies that. When, mm -hmm. his, when his mom says you've learned everything except for how to be a human being, we've lost mm -hmm. what it is that we are. And so I could, I could set students up with that whole context and then show them what it looks like to have lost the sense of who we are and why we're here. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because yeah, in a way, like he, like in a way he hasn't lost his sense mm -hmm. of who we are because he has this patina of religion, right? Mm -hmm. He has this kind of rad trad Catholic thing going, but it's all in his head and it doesn't make it out of his head. Well, this it is doesn't penetrate yeah. into his heart. It doesn't penetrate into his actions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like, like there is no charity and like he thinks the world needs charity there is no charity in him he thinks the world needs faith there is really no faith in him and then, he yeah, yeah. I, I would say this is why he's lost the sense of who he is right whereas percy is going to say this mind body split is ignoring the tertium quid which is like our soul so we are minds bodies and souls and ignatius riley only lives for his body or lives for his mind and he has this sense that we're supposed to have this moral soul here that he's forgotten what it is. And it's a soul that has to be defined in relationship, right? Human beings, this is Percy, would be, are really stealing from De Lubac. Human beings are persons defined by other persons. You're a mother. That's a relationship that's defining you. You're a wife, right? Your identity is not a solo achievement that you get to create ex nihilo. Mm -hmm. Your identity mm -hmm. is a relational thing and he's missing that part and that's mm -hmm. why the key at the very end of the novel that is so purgative for him is gratitude gratitude cannot be experienced alone it takes mm -hmm. another person that you are grateful to or you're grateful to god that's right and at the end doesn't he finally like doesn't something happen with his valve at the end oh no i can't remember i think it does well something's always happening to his valve I was, on twitter i wanted to rename this novel great erectations <laughs> <laughs> yeah i thought that was kind of clever myself yeah yeah okay sorry this is like the penultimate paragraph mirna prodded and shifted the renault through the city traffic masterfully weaving in and out of impossibly narrow lanes until they were clear of the last twinkling streetlight of the last swampy suburb then they were in darkness in the center of the salt marshes ignatius looked out at the highway marker that reflected their headlights us 11 the marker flew past he rolled down the window an inch or two and breathed the salt air blowing in over the marshes from the gulf as if the air were a purgative his valve opened mm -hmm. he breathed again this time more deeply the dull headache was lifting right mm -hmm. yep. so you know maybe his maybe his valve is opened now <laughs> right which i mean is a is wow. a very material bodily thing
Anyway, I, I can't thank you enough for yeah. talking about me, talking with me. Sorry. I can't thank you enough for talking with me about this amazing novel because, yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which I feel like I need help better mm -hmm. understanding this. And now I feel like I do. So, yeah. yeah. So I am grateful. Speaking of gratitude. I, say, I feel like you just proved the entire point of the book, right? Right. Which is supposed to be, we're defined in community. Reading should not just be a monologic experience, isolated, but it should be more open. There you go. I love it that your dog is finally barking. <laughs> Hello. Like, but like, what is your dog's name? <laughs> Toller is like Tolkien. Okay. Of course, your dog isn't named like Buster. So <laughs> nope. Yep. Gotta have a pretentious name. That's amazing. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Thanks. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or on the Apple ICM. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go over to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly patron as we head into our fourth season. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Nick Ripatrazone to discuss the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Mm -hmm.